You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to Episode 18 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Today we're excited to be joined by three investigators, Mike Hiller, Joe Gordon, and Paul Stansel, from our Office of Railroad, Pipeline, and Hazardous Materials Investigations. We're going to be talking about the March 2017 train derailment in Grettinger, Iowa. I'd like to start off by um, asking each gentleman to share kind of a quick overview of how they got to the board and um, what their role is here at the NTSB. So let's start with Mike Hiller. Thanks, Leah. Um, I joined the board in March of 2011, and prior to that, I had a 23-year career at the Washington Metropolitan Transit Authority here in Washington, D.C. I joined that agency as a mechanic and worked my way into their engineering group and ultimately finished my career as their chief rolling stock engineer. So I had a very diverse career that involved uh, engineering design, vehicle maintenance, um, with the uh, with the transit here in Washington, D.C. So um, I had a lot of opportunity to work with the safety board with investigations that occurred at the agency. Um, and it was in one such accident in 2009, I actually testified at an NTSB hearing as a subject matter expert on vehicle crash worthiness. And I interacted with many of the investigators and the board at that time. And soon after, a a job posting came available, and I must have made a good impression on my honest answers. And um, it wasn't long after that, in 2011, that I was able to take a position as an investigator here at the NTSB. So that's my short story. Great. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. So um, I started my railroad career in um, 2000 and uh, started with one of the class one railroads, the one of the major railroads in the nation, um, CSX Transportation. Started there as a, just hired out as a laborer. And within, um, within three months, I was promoted to a track inspector. Um, still had a whole lot to learn. They had a really good mentoring process that I went through. And um, so I worked there as a track inspector in the engineering department. And um, because of of some of the changes that were going on in the railroad at the time, um, I transferred to the mechanical department and also became a a qualified mechanical inspector. And uh, before leaving CSX, I had gone into a uh, uh, relief supervisor position. And then I uh, left the railroad and went and started my uh, safety career um, in actually first started with the Virginia State Corporation Commission as a state inspector, uh, track inspector, and then had an opportunity to go to work for the Federal Railroad Administration and um, went there and and worked for the FRA for six years. And then in uh, 2014, we had a crude oil derailment in Lynchburg, Virginia, which was a part of my assigned territory with the FRA. And that was my first exposure to NTSB. And uh, much like what Mike said, you know, the working with the NTSB investigators, that was the first time that that I really understood, uh, you know, the, the multi multimodal um, nature of the of the NTSB. 
and you know they we had a discussion about uh, they were getting ready to hire some more investigators and and they referred me to the website and I came here in uh, in tw late 2014. Great thanks and Paul. Yes uh, good afternoon Leah. Um, I'm Paul Stancil and hazardous materials accident investigator here with NTSB and I began my career uh, back in 1977 as an environmental enforcement inspector for the state of Maryland. And uh, after a few years, I uh, went to work for the Attorney General's office as a criminal investigator doing um, environmental crimes enforcement. And I retired as their chief investigator back in 2007 and uh, transitioned over to NTSB. So I've been here about 11 years now. Um, so uh, my... Uh, position here, I uh, investigate a lot of complex and diverse um, accidents that involve hazardous materials releases, and not only in the railroad uh, industry, but also with uh, pipeline, highway, marine, and aviation, uh, all of those modes of transportation. And that's both nationally and internationally as well. Uh, so I've served here as either the uh, investigator in charge of accidents or as a group chairman leading and managing groups of government and industry um, investigation experts. So uh, during my tenure here, I've uh, been deployed to most of the major accidents involving hazardous materials releases and the, um, the issues that I work on or have identified um, you know, safety issues of national significance relate to uh, mitigating the severity of hazardous materials releases to communities and the environment um, and focusing on the effectiveness of hazardous materials packaging and performance criteria, the adequacy of government regulations and industry standards and best practices. Um, we also look at emergency preparedness and contingency planning and incident management uh, aspects of uh, these issues that come up during the, the course of our investigation. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So today we, like I said, are going to talk about Grettinger, Iowa, the train derailment that occurred in March 2017. And we are going to allow our investigators to kind of give us a, a different perspective, a deeper dive into what was what they found and what was going on. Um, it's a little bit of a different um, a different path that we're taking on our um, on our podcast, and I think that it'll be very interesting to our listeners. So I want to lead off with a question to Mike. You were the investigator in charge on this uh, derailment, and I want to I want to get an idea of what you know what it was that you found when you arrived, and what what you were looking at when when it got going, when it occurred. Excuse me. So Leah, I think um, it'd be a good idea just to tell the audience a little bit about the accident and. Um, early in the morning on March 10th of 2017, there was a 98-car train traveling in a town called uh, Grettinger, Iowa. Um, the train was hauling ethanol, and we're going to talk a little bit about the types of ethanol as we get more into this. But the train was traveling on a track that uh, was classified as Class Three track, and it was traveling at 30 miles an hour. And as it moved uh, toward this uh, timber bridge, the rail underneath of it started to break apart. And we'll talk a little bit about how we knew uh, that had happened. And as the uh, rail broke underneath the train, 20 cars were able to cross this old timber bridge. 
and uh, then the train started to derail. Um, 20 tanker cars carrying ethanol derailed, and several of them breached and fueled a fire. Uh, there were no injuries. There were maybe three voluntary evacuations um, and about $4 million in damage. So when you asked me the question, um, what were some of the things that were leading up to this, that was um, the foundation of our accident investigation. Um, when we arrive on scene, um, we would not only look at just what happened, we look at why it happened. So the deeper dive is what were the events that led up to that investigation or, or that accident? So typically what we like to do is pull information uh, from one to two years, depending on, um, you know, uh, what the particular accident is. Uh, Joe's going to talk a little bit about some of the records that he pulled from the, the track, which uh, for those that may not know in a... Uh, our perspective, a track is not just the two rails, it's all of the things that make the track system a track. So it's got to do with the surface and the ballast and the ties and the tie plates and the spikes. So we'll pull uh, years of information about that track, not only from the railroad, but we're going to pull it from the regulator too. Uh, we want to know uh, how they were maintaining that particular section of track. Um, and other things that we're going to look at is uh, exactly how the car was loaded. Uh, we're going to look at the types of cars that was carrying the product because we have a history with the particular type of car that was involved in that. And Mr. Stansel will talk a little bit about that. Um, this accident allowed us to revisit um, a standing issue with something called a DOT 111 tank car. And part of of our 10 most wanted uh, items on our safety advocacy list is to safely move hazardous materials across the country. And the DOT 111 tank car is vulnerable. It uh, has issues associated with uh, crashworthiness. So we wanted to uh, revisit that, take a look at that again. But then there was this silver lining. Um, how could something have a silver lining in, in an accident? The fires and the eruptions weren't as volatile as they could have been. And there's a reason behind that. And as we tease out the, the reason behind it, and I'm not going to tell you now, I want Paula to share that information. What we learned is there's a potential safety benefit associated with the movement of a particular type of ethanol. So... I think I've answered your question. Yes, you sure have. Thank Great. Um, Mike, can you, so when, in looking at a 98-car train, can you kind of give us a little perspective of how long is that? Like so many football fields, miles, 98 cars sounds like a very long train. Um, I think that the train itself was probably about just under a mile. And for listeners, is that usual or is that unique is that um... that's not unique at all that's very common for a, a unit train to be about 100 cars um, then you have general freight which can be longer you can have uh, you can have freight trains as long as two miles in the United States now 
Um, but I think most people are used to seeing shorter trains. So typically the, the trains you're going to see are about a mile or less. And then for a, a, a crash or derailment this size, um, how many, how many um, investigators or how large was your team um, of, of who you took out to uh, do the investigation? We launched more than 17 NTSB personnel to this accident. Um, there were about seven investigators that just focused on the particular disciplines associated with accident investigation, and we had our NTSB support staff. We had our board member. Uh, at the time, it was board member Robert Sumalt, who's also our chairman, currently our chairman. Um, we had our public affairs group. We had our um, um, CIO, chief information officer. So we get uh, a really... Um, uh, large amount of support staff when we go out on these investigations. And does that answer your question? Yeah. And just for our listeners, um, 17 uh, NTSBM employees launching, that's considered a major investigation, correct? In this case, it's considered a major investigation. Okay. If a board member doesn't launch with us, the team is much smaller. Mm -hmm. um, Mr. Gordon just went out on uh, an accident that's a board member didn't launch on, and his team consisted of maybe six investigators. Okay. Yeah, it was actually myself and um, three. Yeah, so okay. four, four NTSB employees on scene. And would you say, um, again, for our listeners, when it comes to train derailments, how often is HAZMAT involved um, in these investigations? Well, I think over, if you look back uh, in the... Um, past 10 years or so, there have been about uh, 17 or 18 uh, significant train accidents involving flammable liquids, just those alone, not, not counting other types of, uh, of accidents. So probably on the order of one or two, maybe three a year, it okay. depends. And the ones that we investigate are usually the worst of the worst. So um, yeah, I'd say at least a couple of times a year. Okay. So you arrived on scene, and um, because it was mentioned that there was a post-crash fire, what what did you all have to do in that situation? Um, I imagine you weren't able to get exactly what you needed to gather as you wanted to gather it immediately. Well, <clears throat> as an IIC, my first priority is always going to be the safety of the team, and I take that uh, really very serious. And... We have uh, a collaborative discussion about how we're going to approach this investigation as a team. We talk about the uh, environmental risks. And this one, we had uh, a released uh, petroleum product. We had um, uh, cold conditions. We had an approaching blizzard, uh, maybe the third day while we were on scene. Um, so... All of these factors uh, are constantly measured and discussed and monitored and reacted to uh, from my perspective. And all of us get the opportunity to serve in the role as IIC. And so we're very familiar with, you know, how to keep our team safe. So going into this particular investigation, that was, quite frankly, my first priority. Um, how can we 
keep our team safe and preserve the accident site so that when we can access it safely, we're able to start collecting the perishable evidence. So perishable evidence, we, we as investigators sometimes refer to ourselves as forensic investigators when it comes to collecting perishable evidence because the scene changes dynamically over time. Uh, the fire can change characteristics of some of the evidence we want to find. The, um, the, the weather can change these types of uh, perishable evidence that we want to find. And also the movement of equipment during the environmental remediation or the hazardous materials response. Trains have to be moved so that the tank cars that didn't get exposed to the fire are not going to be exposed to the fire. So we have to be conscious and aware of all of this movement of the accident scene while we wait until we're able to access the scene. And then when we do, a lot of this effort is still ongoing while we're there. And each one of us is going to have our own particular interests. And I think each group chairman, and Mr. Gordon was a group chairman, Mr. Sansel was a group chairman, they have extensive autonomy to access the site in a way that they know that's safe, in a way that they know is aligned with the IIC's goals, which is to keep everybody safe. So individually, they're going to have their own challenges. So I kind of I kind of keep my eyes on things from that big, broad perspective. I know what the main goals are. We've got to keep them safe. We've got to protect the evidence. And then I hand it off to the team because they know exactly what they need to do. And one of the challenges for the hazardous materials group part of the investigation is documenting the resting position of the tank cars as they are in the derailment. Because once those are moved, you start losing context of the damages that you observe once you start looking at the detailed features of each tank car. So we can't go into a, a tank car pileup and start crawling around and gathering our evidence that way. But what we need to do immediately is document the exact resting positions of all of the, all of the debris. And one of the things that we've started using here of recent uh, is unman unmanned aerial drones to capture the aerial images and help us do that documentation. It greatly speeds up the entire process. And once we are confident that we've photographed and documented everything as it is in the, in the accident scene, the wreckage process begins. So for the tank cars, what we ask them to do, they have to pump them and purge them of products so that we can safely access them. Uh, and they can't even be moved until that happens. So any, any residues or liquids that still remain in the cars are removed. The cars are then staged, and usually it's in a nearby field. And fortunately, in this case, we had uh, a nice area nearby the derailment scene itself where they staged the cars. So uh, as the investigation progressed, uh, they actually were able to pump and remove cars at a, about the same pace that we needed to have time to observe them. So one at a time, they were put into the staging area, and we spent, our group spent uh, a lot of time uh, measuring and looking at the, the fine fracture details and that sort of thing. 
So, so that process worked out pretty smoothly for us, except for some weather challenges that we experienced. Right. Paul, how many um, cars derailed in this? I, I know that we've talked about how, many, how long the train was, but I don't think we've actually mentioned yet how, how many of the cars actually derailed. I believe it was 20 in this case. So we had to look at all 20 of those cars. So we, in terms of the hazardous materials, uh, tank car uh, damage assessment, the crash worthiness of those tank cars, we're not really concerned about other cars that didn't derail, but other uh, investigators are looking at probably the entire train. And how yeah. long again did the fire burn for until the fire was completely out and you were able to access well, the when we, cars? when we arrived on scene, the fire was still burning in, in some areas and uh, it, it diminished a bit. But I believe it was burning until the, the second day of the investigation when it was finally extinguished. So, yeah, we one of the interesting aspects in this case, because the derailment involved undenatured ethanol, uh, it burns with pretty much a colorless flame in daylight. So uh, there, were, there were times where we needed to use thermal imaging equipment to detect the presence of, uh, of fire. But uh, the fire was extinguished uh, at some point during day two, and it didn't really impact our ability to, to get what we needed. Okay. I'm going to come back to the undenatured alcohol, but I want to pivot to Joe and um, ask how how were you able to determine where and and how the the train or the rail was was broken okay um so we mentioned the team of investigators that go out and what we do is we uh, we break up into um, technical working groups is what we refer to them so the each discipline a mechanical track signal um you know paul and his team with the hazardous materials in the tank cars we all break up into technical working groups. And within those technical working groups, they're made up primarily of, of the, um, the NTSB, of course, is, is the lead on the team. And then we get um, help from the Federal Railroad Administration. They normally have invest in inspectors on scene and also the, uh, the carrier. So um, in this case, I've got to give a, a shout out to uh, Jim Southworth and the mechanical team um, he, he called me early on, uh, once I was on scene and, and trying to assess the track structure condition. And, um, he said, I've got a, a witness mark on a wheel tread. And, um, so, you know, with us investigating the number of accidents that we do, we, we understand, you know, I understand it stood immediately what he meant by the witness mark on the wheel tread. And so then we could start to focus on our discontinuity in the rail and start to try to find that. So, um, you know, my job as a as the lead on the track and engineering team is to determine if the track structure is ready for the train. So, you know, we're we're doing that work leading up to the big pileup where all the cars um, came in together after you know after the derailment. And um, so, working with after after that was brought to our attention, you know, we were able to focus on a, a rail and start to do a rail rebuild, um, you know, start to pull the, the rail out of the wreckage. So, uh, you know, as, um, as Paul mentioned, when you have these derailments, the, the railroad has to bring in normally contractors with heavy equipment, cranes and specialized equipment to move these heavy tank cars around. So, you know, we had an, we, we had an area where we where we were focusing on the the likelihood that we would find the uh, suspect rail 
And so as the cars are being lifted and carried away to the, to the staging location that, uh, that Paul mentioned, uh, we've got to look at everything under those cars and, you know, be very careful that things aren't getting buried as the cleanup work begins. And the wreckage from the, the picture was pretty substantial of the, of the bridge. Um, so how, how were you able to find that actual piece of rail? So in this case, we did not find the actual suspect piece of rail. That's what we, that's what we strive to do. Um, we tried very hard in this case. And, and as, uh, as Paul mentioned, the, the weather was a challenge. Um, I think, I think the second day we were 13 degrees and, and, uh, you know, it was just wind and, and snow and it was almost a whiteout condition at times. So, as they're moving cars and and moving the intact str- track structure, we're you know looking for uh, a piece of rail, and and uh, we we try we had um, research and engineering sent out to uh, NTSB investigators to also help us with the rail rebuild uh, portion of the investigation. So as we're pulling the rails out, we're identifying the rails by. Fracture, fracture face and by um, stamping each rail has manufacturer information and the date of the manufacturer as well as field welds and plant welds within the continuous welded rail so we're uh, as we dig this rail out we're kind of building a puzzle putting the the pieces back together to try to figure out where this discontinuity first occurred and um, so we recovered I believe it was 400 feet uh, of the track structure. So it was about 800 feet of rail, but we were missing about 12 feet on one rail and 15 feet on the other rail. Um, so, you know, there was just a lot of, uh, tonnage, uh, trailing tonnage as, as the cars continued to come into the wreck with just the momentum. And, uh, so that was a challenge here. So we had to base the broken rail finding on, other things, supportive information from the from the other teams, and and um, you know we came to that conclusion based on other facts. Can you go into a little bit about what you mean by missing? Because it seems like that's a significant <laughs> amount of of you know rail to to miss. So what what do you mean when you say missing? So you know the track structure, um, a, as you as you know, track is kind of elevated from the ground surface, so that's track subgrade. And, um, you know, it's normally a softer material. It's, it's not as compact as what would be under, you know, on, on a normal ground surface. And so as the, as the trailing tonnage, and it was right off of the end of a bridge, so as all these cars are coming in, they're just driving things into the ground. And, you know, it, it was just, uh, it, it was really hard to, dig all these pieces of rail back out and um, you know there's a possibility uh, there was a river there of course or a creek uh, not really a a big uh, not really a a river but um, we even magged we had a uh, contractor with a truck with a magnet and they even magged the river trying to come up with this piece of rail so um, you know, a lot of it was just to do with where the derailment occurred and the trailing tonnage coming in that we were unable to, to find that definitive piece of rail. Sure. 
And then you mentioned the witness marks on, on some of the, the cars also. And I know in reading through the report that some of the witness marks were on, on, on one side of the train and not on the other. So, um, and then it seemed like, I guess, the first, there were 20 cars that went through before the derailment happened. And some cars had witness marks and some didn't. So can you just kind of walk us through that and how that helped you um, determine that there was broken rail? Yeah, so the witness marks on the rail uh, or on the wheels, one one thing that we're looking at is the orientation of those marks on the wheels. So if it's perpendicular to the uh, rail to the wheel tread, then that tells us that it's it's an ordinary break or a straight break in the rail. So um, then as far as the number of cars that it was on, if uh, in the report we we detail that um, they we started to see these witness marks on wheels after a few cars had made it through. Was it the lead locomotives? They no, started to show up on the fourth car. Okay, started to show up on the fourth car, and then progressively the the marks got more more pronounced. You could you could see them better as you as more of the train traveled through the accident area. So um, then not only were we getting one witness mark on the wheel tread, we started to get two. So this is showing us that, you know, you've got a actual section of the rail that's missing. Is the broken rail, is that a result of aging infrastructure or is it a result of poor maintenance? Is it or is it just a spontaneous occurrence? So there are so many factors that go into broken rails. Broken rails are one of the top three uh, causes of, of derailments. And when you get into the most destructive and most expensive derailments, they, it, that rises up even, even further. So there, there's a lot of research done within the rail industry to, you know, to try to figure out how to detect these uh, internal rail defects. And um, so they use ultrasonic testing, and there's a testing frequency based on the tonnage and, and different, uh, you know, different things, what, what, they're, what they haul on the route. With these high hazardous flammable material trains, sometimes they test at a greater frequency. So they're trying to detect these internal rail flaws that, that will grow into a crack on the rail surface and eventually cause a rail failure. So uh, there are so many things that go into the, the causes of a rail failure, um, temp temperature differentials, residual stress in the rails, and track modulus, which is the vertical stiffness under the track. And so um, also looking at the track structure, it's not, it's not uncommon to have a broken rail and the train makes it over the broken rail. And then that gives the railroad an opportunity to find that broken rail either with a visual inspection or if it's on signalized territory, they could get a track light. So the, the dispatcher would see that that track is still showing as occupied and they would know that they've got a problem if they don't have a train out there. So they can send an inspector out to, to look for the problem and hopefully find, find the broken rail before they run any other um, trains over that location. So... Um, you know, in this, in this case, if the, we started to really look at the track structure, because if the track structure is robust enough, then you can have this discontinuity in the rail, yet the train can sometimes make it over that location. And so we have the derailment, um, and the 
cars are breached and there's the there's the fire um and once and so you you mentioned that the fire could have been worse and you mentioned the undenatured ethanol so i want you to talk about first of all explain what undenatured means and also why that or why the why the fire could have been worse okay so let me back up just a little bit this uh this accident was unique in that it was the first accident involving a unit train of undenatured ethanol. Uh, and by undenatured, what we mean is it's 100% ethanol. There are no additives uh, to the ethanol to denature it, which is a requirement for domestically produced ethanol, fuel ethanol, uh, in order to render it non-drinkable. Uh, and, and non-usable as a, a alcoholic beverage. So they add, uh, typically for fuel ethanol, they'll add natural gasoline at a concentration of between two and two and a half percent. Years ago, it was as much as 5%. So they call denatured fuel ethanol E98, sometimes E95 when it's 5% denatured. So these, um, this natural gasoline is a mixture of petroleum hydrocarbons, which are toxic and are not separable from the ethanol itself. So you can't easily separate or distill it out and then use the ethanol for some other reason than it was intended to be used for. So um, all of the other accidents that we've investigated have involved denatured fuel ethanol. And in those accidents, um, we, you know, have frequently observed uh, some severe outcomes with respect to thermal performance of the tank cars. So uh, tank cars that aren't mechanically breached will, in a pool fire, um, generate internal pressure. The tank shell will thin as it's heated uh, and then eventually will rupture to release an energetic fireball. None of that occurred in the derailment at Gretinger. Um, and furthermore, I think one of the, the greatest differences here is the environmental consequences uh, that um, resulted from the Gradinger derailment were much less severe than we had seen in other accidents with denatured fuel ethanol. Because uh, the denaturant is not separable from the ethanol, the ethanol t tends to entrain and, and bring it down into groundwater supplies and surface waters where the, the, the denaturant compounds, the toxic compounds, especially such as benzene, uh, create a, a concern for you know, pollution of water intakes, groundwater supplies. And in situations, I, I can think of a, a few that have occurred in the past where uh, residential wells nearby, it can take years for the groundwater to migrate just a few hundred yards. And so the remediation efforts would involve installing monitoring wells to determine the progression of the groundwater, sometimes recovery wells to pump the material as much as possible out of the groundwater, a very long and extensive and, ex and expensive process. Um, and not only that, you have contaminated soils that have to be remediated and disposed as hazardous waste. Again, none of that was a, a factor at Gradinger. Um, the discharge, uh, some, dis some ethanol discharged into the, the creek 
there was some localized depression of the, the dissolved oxygen levels, but downstream it was in a not, not a very far distance. It was essentially undetectable. The soils uh, were excavated down to maybe two or three feet, and those were able to be disposed at a sanitary landfill without the, all of the testing required for had there been denaturant present. So, so there seems to be a, a very significant benefit to transporting ethanol in its undenatured form. So why are we dispose, Why are we transporting it denatured at all? Uh, and so that's that's a good question. So, in the last couple of years, um, the ethanol that's being shipped for export, uh, those markets usually want the ethanol in its undenatured form. And so the shippers from the very same facilities that produce it as denatured will ship one or the other. If it's going for export, it's usually undenatured. If it's being used for domestic use as a gasoline additive or uh, oxygenate for gasoline fuels, uh, it's shipped as denatured um, on, on those same routes. So if there's a difference in the safety and, and the performance of the, uh, the tank cars because of the denaturant, then we, we feel that, that you know, this one accident seems to suggest that there may be some safety benefits, and so we feel that that needs to be studied to, you know, we have one uh, anecdotal incident, uh, and we don't know whether that justifies any operational changes at this time until we can maybe generate some scientific data as opposed to waiting for future accidents to occur to generate some sort of a track record. Um, just as a follow-along, um, is the undenatured ethanol, it sounds like is not harmful to or as harmful to the environment or to, you know, to someone who comes in contact with it, or am I misunderstanding? Yeah, I wouldn't want to suggest that it's not harmful okay. at all. There, there are some concerns, health concerns, okay. of course. But uh, obviously, from an environmental or contact, human contact uh, perspective, and especially drinking water supplies, it, it's um, significantly different. Uh, it is flammable, but not as um, well. If there, there are a number of uh, parameters that would relate to a product's flammability, one being the flash point. So we do know that the flash point of undenatured ethanol is significantly higher than the flash point of undenatured ethanol. I'm sorry, of denatured ethanol. I may have gotten that backwards. So, so undenatured ethanol has a high flash point. Denatured ethanol has a low flash point, which means that it ignites at a significantly lower temperature. Okay. It generates enough vapor to ignite at a low temperature. Okay. And with this, so we, we've talked about the, the rail and we've talked about the product that was being shipped. I want to talk a little bit now about the, the cars um, and the, the DOT 111 cars. I want, um, can you talk a little bit about those cars and um, what challenges they may have or what, what they may have contributed to the derailment or the, the, the fire is, as a result? Yeah, so the DOT 111 tank car um, is the tank car that's 
they're, they're referred to as legacy DOT-111 tank cars because they've been in the fleet for uh, since the late 1950s. The, the design hasn't changed very much. They have the, the least protective features of any tank car currently in use for flammable liquids uh, transportation. And currently they are mandated to be phased out of service depending on which service it is. Eth ethanol has, I believe, 2023 crude oil. The, the date is already passed for, for replacing those cars. Other flammable liquids, the date is further out into the future. Uh, so the DOT 111 car has no thermal protection. Like I said, very little puncture resistance. So there's no head shield. The tank shell is the thinnest uh, possible shell that uh, that's used for um, flammable liquid, seven sixteenths of an inch. Um, the uh, the top fittings are not protected. Uh, in the case, in the event of a rollover or collision, the top fittings are usually severed, and uh, are a source of of uh, product release. The bottom outlet valve is another. Uh, frequent problem with uh, these DOT 111 cars, so they're, they're not protected sufficiently to prevent releases to occur. And from the um, <coughs> from the chart in the report, it it did appear as though many of the the cars had um, punctures or um, release points. Is that is that correct? Yes, uh, the majority of the cars were severely punctured. So, cars. Um, but, but the thermal damage was much less. So uh, you, you had cars that didn't release anything, very few, but some that didn't release any product that may have had the, uh, the pool fire been more intense. And we, um, we would like to see some uh, updated cars be um, brought in. I'm, I'm understanding the 117, is that correct? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about what the, one, the DOT 117 cars would do to improve safety? Right. So the, the new cars, uh, one being the DOT 117, uh, there's a retrofit version and then a, a new version uh, that um, is probably the best of, of uh, option that's available. Um, at the time this accident occurred, um, the ethanol industry as a whole had very few DOT 117s in its fleet, essentially none at the time of this accident. But since this accident, especially over the last year or six months, there's been a, a large um, changeover of tank cars. So a lot of the DOT one, uh, 111s are being replaced with 117s. So going from about none at the time of this accident to about 14,000 as of uh, June of uh, this 2018. So uh, there, there is uh, some movement toward replacing these cars. And, and as I said, initially, our concern was they're procrastinating. They're, they're not moving these cars fast enough. Um, whether or not that, uh, uh, is, that progression continues at a sufficient pace is, is a concern to us. Um, <clears throat> right now, uh, if you look at the number of DOT one, uh, 111s that have to be replaced in the fleet, um, there's essentially 18,700 of them still in service in ethanol and about 3,000 uh, CPC 1232 cars in ethanol, which is a 
a more robust version of the DOT 111. Uh, those cars need to be replaced by 2023. And that, in order to maintain an adequate pace of replacement, that equates to about 300 tank cars per month that have to be replaced. Now, if those cars were replaced with brand new DOT 117s, right now, roughly about that amount is what's being produced by industry. So that wouldn't leave any cars for crude oil or other for other flammable liquids. Although there have been months where the production was much higher than 300 cars, but that's a rough estimate of the um, the current production rate. What's um so the deadline has been has it been extended to 2023? Was it originally um, set at no, an early? No, it, it was set at 2023 by the FAST Act. Okay. So so it it has not changed. The FRA administrator though, if if uh, industry comes to FRA at the end of the, the mandated deadline and, and you know, under conditions where the industry hasn't been able to produce enough cars, the FRA administrator has the ability to extend it another two years. But the only, so, so the concern we have with this is uh, PHMSA, the Pipeline and Hazardous Material Safety Administration, has not established any intermediate metrics for uh, a fleet owner to uh, meet along the way to that deadline. So someone procrastinating, a, tank, a large tank car fleet owner waiting to try to recoup the greatest return on their investment on DOT 111s, at the end, there may not be sufficient tank cars available. And so the only thing to prevent this is that, um, uh, you know, there, these cars, by law can't be used unless they're 117 compliant. So a non-compliant tank car cannot be used in transportation. So this could this could result in a pinch at the end of this this uh, mandated replacement period if car owners don't maintain that adequate pace. Sure. Paul, when did the NTSB first recommend that the DOT 111s needed to be replaced. It was a result of the uh, 2009 Cherry Valley, Illinois accident. I think the recommendation was actually made in 2012. Okay, and then I know that um, the recommendations that we've that we've made says replace or retrofit. Um, what what does it mean to retrofit? Those. So, so you can take a, a DOT 111 or a CPC 1232 car and add a jacket to it, thermal protection, head shields, top fittings protection, and a bottom outlet valve operating handle that's designed to resist um, uh, derailment forces and prevent a release. So, so those are essentially the, the features that need to be added to cars to retrofit them features that the new car has in its its construction design. Mike, can you talk a little bit about the synergy between the three of you all and working together on this investigation and how that all worked? What a question. <clears throat> I should I should ask, do you all work together often on <laughs> investigations? We all yeah, I think we work together uh, very often. There's only 13 accident investigators in the railroad pipeline group, in the rail group. Um, so I'm not quite sure how to answer that question. I mean, I don't think there's a, 
you know, I know we work very closely together. We complement each other. Sure. I think. So in some of our other modes, the there's investigative teams that are set up. Like in Highway, there's one investigator in charge, and then they have you know a mm, team. No. So are you all similar to that? No, we're 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 a lot more flexible. Um, in one particular accident scenario, I could be a group chairman for Joe as an IIC. And so we don't have sort of a permanent assignment uh, as far as uh, who's IIC. So I think, I think um, as far as working together, as, as an IIC, um, I know what the group chairman needs to provide so that I can deliver you know, a full investigation. Joe uh, is, uh, as, a, as a group chairman, um, he knows he's got to provide, you know, the factual reports and, of course, the, uh, the analysis so that we can, you know, uh, get to the findings and conclusions and recommendations. Um, you know, our respective backgrounds, I do believe, complement each other. Um, you know, Joe's background is, you know, with the track structure. My background is engineering. So I can take a lot of those principles and and apply it to some of the um, the elements of Joe's investigation, so that we can sort of build it up together. Um, you know, I don't claim to be the expert in track and structures, but I do know quite a bit about uh, materials and mechanics of materials from an engineering perspective. Um, I know a lot about um, failure modes with metal and um, other systems. So when we're looking at an accident like this, um, Joe and I can really um, get into some deep, heavy discussions about failure modes. And, and he earlier, he earlier spoke about um, track stiffness. Um, that can lead to things like cyclic fatigue or premature failure. And Joe and I both know about those things. So I think we challenge each other when it comes to our respective knowledge. And that helps us get a better report. And I don't think it stops there. I think the board itself has a, a number of folks in our review process um, that help us or challenge us to make sure that we've looked as, as thoroughly as we can at the facts that were presented. Our research and engineering group certainly does that for us. And a lot of the more seasoned directors, when we get into the director's reviews, they help us do that. So I consider all of those elements part of the team. So they may not be the group chairman or the group participants, but they certainly contribute to, I think, an overall synergy to the accident investigation. So I found that to be a, a challenging question. I, you know, I don't, I, at first I just focused right on that particular question and in, in the individual, but I think it goes to the whole agency. Um, it's all of us working together to try to get to the best probable cause and the best safety recommendation we can. I think one thing I, I would like to add to that, um, having worked in other modes of transportation quite a bit in addition to rail, I see one unique aspect in the rail investigations in that usually, you know, 
group chairmen go out and it's usually the same people. You, you see people that you've seen at other accident scenes. So they all, you know, we, we form a group with the FRA and the regulators, um, the, the rail carriers, uh, unions, um, various tank car manufacturers and other organizations. They're all the same. Uh, it's just a different accident scene. So we all have worked together before for the most part and we know what to expect. So it makes things a lot smoother. I think it, it, you know, as a group chairman, you're sort of operating in a bubble. Then at the end of the day, we get together and share what, what our findings were. Uh, so it's, it's a very smooth process on scene. I think that's a great segue. You mentioned the findings, and um, you know we've spent a lot of time talking about the derailment and the circumstances and the things that you um, that you found and determined. Um, and ultimately, you determined that the broken rail was the cause of this derailment. Um, and Mike and Joe, you shared you know your your backgrounds, and and you had done some uh, inspection work before. So, should the broken rail have been something that was identified and or detected before before this happened or was it detected before this happened so <clears throat> what we what we know is that the rail did fail under the train um, you know that's that, that goes back to the witness marks we didn't have those witness marks on the lead set of wheels of that train that that traversed that track so we know that the failure occurred under the rail. So then that becomes more difficult to understand, you know, was there anything presenting on the rail that could have been caught by a visual inspection? Um, ultrasonic testing that, that the railroads do, on that line, I believe they were testing two times a year. So, you know, there are some things that can happen within the, between those tests that, um, you know, that there can be... Um, the flaws inside the rail that start to uh, start to move and start to crack and open up and, and you know, come out to the head of the rail and, and ultimately it's a complete failure of the rail. So, uh, you know, finding, um, saying whether or not that, that that would have, should have been found on a routine inspection, that's, that's hard to say, you know, knowing that it, that it did break under the rail or under the, the movement. Can you talk a little bit more about an, like the ins inspection program or, or kind of how often the track is inspected and what, and what that looks like? I, I think for, in the report I read that maybe the inspectors have a kind of a territory of track that they're responsible for, for knowing kind of what's going on and inspecting. So this was um, an interesting investigation because the line itself was about 70 miles and it was really carrying ethanol trains, maybe one train every week. And what Joe and I discussed while we were on scene and for many months after the fact was that the tie condition, the cross tie condition, which is part of the track structure, was in questionable shape. Joe went out and as an inspector, he would have condemned these ties, basically saying they are not ready for the train. And back to the reports I talked about when I was uh, answering a question earlier, we got two years of records, and Joe and his team poured through those records. 
there were more than 290 pages of Union Pacific records that he looked through. And there were many characterizations about cross-dye conditions. And then we didn't stop there. We got the records from the regulator, from the FRA, and their inspection of the territory. And Joe commented a little bit about this, the state inspection program. It's no different than the regular uh, FRA program. Their training is exactly the same. And his comments were, the cross-tie condition is terrible here. So this gets back to the maintenance question. And then, Joe, how could this have le led up to the, to the accident derailment? Yeah, so there again, we go back to the, the robust track structure and, you know, maintaining cross ties. And, and you know, the reason, the reason for the minimum standards that you have to have so many effective cross ties in a segment of rail, and that's normally a 40-foot segment of rail, you know, the minimum track safety standards set forth how many effective cross ties have to be in that segment. And also around rail joints to where if there's a there's an issue with the rail joint that, you know, that area is robust enough that the train can make it over that territory. So looking at the um, the inspection records the way that we did, and I think your earlier question was uh, frequency of inspection. So the railroads are required on class two track, I believe, we were class three track here, class correct? Three. Class three track. Um, the railroads are required to inspect that track twice weekly with one calendar day interval in between inspections. So, you know, they make a trip over the territory, either a walking inspection or in a high rail vehicle. It's just like a highway truck with, with specialized gear. And they, you know, traverse the track in a high rail vehicle. And then as far as the federal inspectors or the state participating program working with the federal inspectors, what we saw was on average the, uh, well, the, for the two years that we looked at, the state inspectors were there normally two times a year, and the federal inspector was there one time a year, sometimes two. So I know that unfortunately this is not the first accident that you all, or that we have investigated in which UP's maintenance um, and inspection program has kind of come up as a concern. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of what we've found before and maybe recommendations that you all, the recommendations that you all made from this Grettinger um, investigation that you're hoping will kind of in, improve that process? Yes, yeah, so the previous recommendation, uh, maybe Mike could speak to that. So in doing some research, um, we went back into our recommendations database and found that in December of 1998, there was a railroad accident that uh, one of the findings was related to the maintenance of the track structure. And Union Pacific at the time was responsible for the maintenance of the track structure. Um, and much like then in 1998 and this accident investigation, we are making recommendations to the Union Pacific regarding their practice of maintenance and inspection. And what do we expect out of that? We expect that they're going to internalize this recommendation from a corporate perspective, and they're going to look at the policy 
They're going to look at the practice, and they're going to look at their own management oversight of how the inspections are completed and how they're reacted upon and uh, how they're corrected. Um, we understand that there are a lot of prioritizations that have to take place when it comes to maintenance. And we believe that in the case of the Grattinger, Iowa accident, the risks associated with the safe movement of a hazardous material should be considered a higher priority than those that are not. And in that case, um, that's, that's why the board feels that the recommendation that we're making to the Union Pacific is appropriate. And then you also, through this investigation, also have identified some opportunities for the FRA also to, um, to look at the oversight of the program as well. Yeah, to look at the oversight of the FRA. That's one thing that we always look at when we go on scene. We, we look at the way that the track is being maintained or the way that the rolling stock is being maintained. And then we also look at the oversight. And so in this case, uh, we... we talk a lot about the defective cross ties and what we found was these cross ties had been in the track since the mid 80s late 80s so um, cross ties are subjective in nature when you're inspecting a cross tie we always used to say when we were training new inspectors that ugly doesn't make it a defect you know it, it lays out there in the weather and things happen and, you know, water gets into cracks and freeze and thaw. And, you know, so just the fact that it doesn't look like a new cross tie doesn't make it defective. So it comes down to a performance based. And so you've got to get out and you've got to actually, you know, put your toe, your boots on spikes and fasteners and find out, you know, is this is this tie able to perform the the main functions of of a cross tie which are to maintain gauge surface and alignment so the track geometry and in order to hold gauge they have to be able to hold the fasteners that are put in place in this case it was uh, track spikes so you, that can't really be done you know from a high rail vehicle you have to put your boots on the ground and, and get out and investigate further when you get into these locations so what we wanted to what we want to be sure of is that there's a consistency with the use of enforcement tools. FRA has enforcement tools available to them. If a railroad is not maintaining to the minimum standard, then the FRA has uh, the ability to recommend civil penalty and to compel the railroad to comply with the rules. And, and there are some other things that they can do. Uh, special notice for repair. There, there are several different options that they have you know, in their, uh, that are available to them as enforcement to compel the railroads to comply with the rules. So we, the recommendation really goes to the heart of consistency, just training the inspectors, making sure that they understand, you know, the, uh, report the defective conditions. If you're reporting the defective conditions and over time, you know, the railroad's not responding accordingly with the, with the needed uh, track maintenance, then use your enforcement tools you know, to get to gain that compliance. And is this training, is it a one-time training that you're hoping, or is this something that would be kind of a consistent training or a re, um, uh, continuing education experience for, for the railroaders? Yeah, so the uh, FRA currently does, they do a uh, annual 
an annual training for their inspectors for each different discipline. They call them recurrency training. So we expect that it would just be part of that recurrency training. We had a or we were talking about the um, undenatured ethanol is the first time that we've really that NTSB has has looked at this, and I just want to talk about or I want to ask you all: Was there any other firsts that came out of this investigation that were that were new that you hadn't uh, seen before, or taken a look at, or practices employed? So I'll talk a little bit about ninety-pound rail. In this accident, much like some of the other accidents we've investigated, the train was running on 90-pound rail. And in our world, it's like the, selecting a, a pipe, the size of pipe. How much do you want to push through the pipe? So the bigger the pipe, the more you can push through. In this case, 90-pound rail refers to uh, the weight of three linear feet of rail. So in this case, three linear feet would weigh 90 pounds. And the weight can go up. So in some cases, three linear feet could weigh 140 plus pounds. We wanted to understand if this rail was strong enough to support a fully loaded tank car. The loads of tank car, the loaded tank car, is the weight of it is starting to change. Um, I believe now a fully loaded tank car can weigh as much as 286,000 pounds. And when you have 100 of them connected together, going over 90-pound rail that is worn, we want to understand from a safety perspective, is it strong enough? So with the help of our metallurgical expertise here at the NTSB, our research and engineering group undertook this task. And we were able to take the rail that we found on scene and examine it. And then we were able to take uh, profiles of that rail using some, some tools that we have here at the NTSB and model this using something called finite element analysis. And what that allows you to do is build it in a model space to understand how it's going to react when there are loads applied to it. And when you do this, you can see some of the stress concentrations and where they're going to be higher than the strength of the material would, al would allow. So you'll be able to predict whether or not it's going to fail. So that was a first, a definite first for the NTSB. And what did we learn? Well, what we did learn is that we had nothing to be concerned about. If the rail is properly maintained in a properly constructed track structure, uh, even with the heavier uh, tank cars. So that was, that was one of the firsts. So another first, we were able to construct an animation using 3D modeling that allowed us to predict the accident behavior of the cars in this particular derailment. We had 20 cars that derailed, and with the information from the event recorders, we were able to know the entry speed and the resting position. Now, we had the resting position information from the drone technology that we deployed, so we were able to create a 3D model from 
that particular technology. So what this information will allow us to do in the future is potentially predict the behavior of the cars during an accident. And when we are able to understand how the cars will behave during an accident, we can make better recommendations related to how to protect for future um, accidents and make better recommendations. I want to put this out there. And um, again, because with our investigations, we find out the probable cause, kind of what, what went wrong. But, you know, in, in most situations, there are other things that didn't go wrong, some things that were, that were done well and, and done right. And I just want to kind of get a little bit of perspective on that from you all in terms of what, you know, aside from the, the rail and the, the explosion, what, what were some things that we found that were okay and, and that went well? Well, I'd like to mention the emergency response actions and the, the actions of the fire chief and his team uh, went very well. Uh, they conducted an appropriate evacuation. Um, no one was injured. Uh, they took the appropriate actions to stand off and allow the, the ethanol to burn. Um, they were able to do that because um, of the remoteness of the incident, so there was no need to attack the fire and attempt to, uh, to put it out right away. However, there, there was a, I'd like to back up just a moment, there was a little bit of a problem with an inconsistency in the, um, the train documentation versus the placarding. So, so we did have a discrepancy there. Uh, the chief noted uh, that at the time he wasn't aware of it, but it didn't really affect his response in this case, but it did have the potential of causing some confusion and delay to the response activities. It's important that the, the uh, train documentation be accurate because that's handed off to the emergency responders immediately upon an accident. So in this case, the consist had the material identified as denatured fuel ethanol. The hazards are a little bit different. Uh, the, the first responders need to know what the hazards are, in this case, potentially, that uh, the flames may not be visible during daylight, for instance. Um, it, it had the, um, there been a need for a, a, a close quarters evacuation or ex an extraction of a train crew, for instance, uh, uh, first responders could have been exposed and potentially injured uh, in, in that sort of a case. But all in all, the first response, the, the emergency response went very well. It's handled very um, professionally, and, and uh, we're happy to see that, that they did receive some training in advance of this incident from the railroads and uh, resources that were available out there, and it helped in this incident. One other thing that we noted was that uh, U UP was taking kind of a risk management approach to the to the territory. So we talk about the the poor tie condition and the 90 pound rail in the accident area. As you got closer to populated areas on that on that line on that territory, that's where the bigger they put in bigger rail, the the heavier rail section, which is less prone to rail failures, newer rail. And they also, the, the tie condition improved as you, as you got into town, around grade crossings, different things like that. 
And um, we also know from from talking to the federal inspectors that th- they were also taking a, a risk management approach. They they have a limited number of inspectors, and you know they they have to they have a large territory and a limited number of inspectors. So they have to prioritize where their inspectors go to you know to perform these compliance inspections. So we saw some good things in that regard as well. I'd say on nearly every accident investigation I've been involved with, when we show up, there is an overwhelming response by the the railroad in, involved in the investigation to immediately address concerns that we have on scene that they can uh, they don't have to wait for an accident report to be delivered. Oftentimes our accident reports are 12 months to 18 months. So in this case, some of the things that were done um, very early on by the Union Pacific Railroad, it was to replace more than 8,600 cross ties in the subdivision that this accident occurred in. So I think that's a good thing. Um, You know, we understand why it happens because we're there. And if we hadn't have shown up and there wasn't a derailment, likely nothing would be done. It, you know, it would be prioritized based on their current program. So the fact that we show up and these types of post-accident actions can uh, happen immediately is a big improvement to the overall safety of moving ethanol trains on that territory. So I think that's a good example of a good outcome. Yeah, and just to add to that, another another thing that I've noticed in when we show up for an accident investigation, things slow down. Um, I've worked derailments from the railroad, you know, working for the industry. Um, I've worked on derailments as a regulator. And then coming here to the NTSB, what I, what I realize is when, when we get on scene, we are kind of controlling the pace of the cleanup operation you know the the big pressure of course is to get all of the wreckage out of the way to get the line reestablished and to start running trains again and so uh, us coming out and performing the the investigation the way that we do it causes everybody to slow down and I've heard you know from the railroads that they appreciate this that it gives them a chance to look beyond okay this was a broken rail to look and say, okay, the rail broke, but why did the rail break? And, you know, what can we be doing? So j- just showing up, as, as Mike said, it, it has an immediate impact on the safety from, you know, from the time they start to run a train on that territory again. You know what? I'm going to say one more thing. We had more than 17 NTSB investigators there. We had probably 100 representatives from the Union Pacific. We probably had 20 representatives from the FRA and the other parties that support in total with the environmental remediation and the rail rebuild and the recovery. We probably had more than 300 people at this little location in Grettinger, Iowa, and not one person was injured. And we were able to do what I believe is a thorough investigation and we found some meaningful safety recommendations that's going to improve transportation safety. All of that 
without not one person getting hurt. So I think that's a silver lining too. Do you have any uh, final thoughts uh, wrapping up um, that you'd like to share with us about this accident investigation? Yeah, I think I think it would go without saying that our investigations are a collaborative effort with not just our investigating uh, investigators here at the NTSB, but with also our party participants. Ours is a party process. That means we involve the expertise of our partners within the air, uh, railroad industry, whether they be the railroad, the regulator, the unions. And in this case, I think that without them, we wouldn't be able to do a good a job as we do. And I would just like to say thanks to the railroads, thanks to the regulators, and thanks to our union participants. Well, and, and off of that, um, you know, also like to say that when when we launch to an accident, it's it's normally a really bad accident. You know, we don't we don't go to the small um, one or two car derailments. And so anytime there's an opportunity to go out and and learn safety lessons when there was no loss of life, that makes it a, a whole lot better environment on scene. And um so, you know, these are, there's no good accident, but these are the best kind of accidents where we can go out, you know, little, little environmental impact. Um, there was some structure damage to the railroad and to the rolling stock, the, the railroad equipment, but at the end of the day, everybody went home. And then as Mike mentioned, you know, that stayed the same throughout the course of the investigation that, that it was all done with, with no injury. So, you know, it, it's a good learning lesson when we can go out and possibly make safety improvements and not have some of those other catastrophic events that, that lead up to those. Well said, Joe. I concur 100%. Thank you. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I want to thank Mike Hiller, Paul Stancil, and Joe Gordon again for joining us today for Behind the Scene at NTSB. Safe shipment of hazardous materials is on our most wanted list of transportation safety improvements, and we really appreciate you guys looking into this and issuing recommendations that will improve the safety of, uh, of all Americans. Um, I want to thank uh, Stephanie Shaw, my co-host today, and I want to Thank uh, James Anderson for being our sound guy. And thank you for listening. We will see you next time. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye. Bye.